Matthew chapter 9 is where we are this evening. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Wonderful passage of Scripture. Uh, wonderful uh, conversion story of uh, the Apostle Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, the man after whose name uh, uh, whose, whose name uh, is, is uh, carried in this book, after whom this book is named. And uh, chapter 9, verse 9, it says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. When I uh, moved to England and became the pastor at Milton Baptist Church in Stoke-on-Trent, a man came and he approached me uh, on one occasion and he asked me, very early on in the ministry, he asked me if I would promote uh, lunches on behalf of the Food Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship. And, uh, you know, he was a nice man. He was very gracious in his approach. And they had very good intentions, there's no doubt. But uh, because the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International is uh, extremely charismatic, I politely declined, and uh, yet he persisted in inviting me. I never attended any of those lunches, but each month he would send me invites again and again, uh, regardless, highlighting the keynote speaker at each upcoming luncheon. And I used to smile at many of those notices, many of the testimonies that were advertised, because every one of them seemed much more sensational and more dramatic than the last. They would have people who were mafia mobsters come and testify, or someone who was running an international crime syndicate of some kind, a drugs dealer or a professional hitman or something. It was never anybody who was just ordinary Joe, you know. It wasn't everybody who was just a plumber or an electrician or a farmer or something. They always had these extreme uh, lifestyles uh, behind them. And I guess they thought by offering a more sensational testimony, it was likely to attract more people in, and it may well uh, have done. But I'll tell you this, the apostles Matthew would never have been invited to speak at any of those lunches because his testimony is anything but extreme. It's anything but dramatic. Uh, In fact, it's lacking somewhat in action. We have the whole story of Matthew's conversion told in one verse, verse 9 of our reading. As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Now, sometimes 
in our church, when we're holding gospel missions and we ask people to come and testify, we'd say to them, I'd say to them, listen, you know, you've got to give the preacher time, so don't be taking up the whole time. Uh, just take about 10 minutes and try and stick to that time. And very often those who are testifying find that the 10 minutes goes very quickly and uh, they're running out of time and they're struggling to get their testimony uh, c- contained within that time uh, limit. But, uh, you know, Matthew wouldn't have had that problem. If you were to read his testimony out loud, uh, it would take you less than 10 seconds to recount it. So if Matthew would have been the perfect uh, person to testify at a gospel mission, if I'd have said to him, Matthew, come and tell us your story. How did you get saved? Here's what he would say. I was sitting at the receipt of custom, and Jesus came along, and he said, follow me. And I arose and followed him. And then he would have sat down. And you might have sat there and thought, well, that wasn't much of a story. You know, that wasn't very interesting. I mean, it's pretty dull, really. And uh, you might think of Matthew as perhaps the dullest of uh, disciples. But I want you to know that Matthew, in the simplicity of his story, was as saved as Paul was in the drama of his story. That Matthew's testimony was just as valid as any other uh, testimony that you come across in Scripture. That his conversion was just as real. That his salvation was just as sure. And here's the thing. You don't have to have a dramatic testimony to go to heaven. You just have to have a testimony. You just have to be able to say that you're saved. You don't have to live in the darkest of sin. You don't have to go out into the depths of wickedness. You simply have to come and trust Christ as your Savior. You have to follow him. So I want to think tonight, first of all, about this conversion. And you know, the other gospel writers, they also speak of Matthew's conversion, probably because they were surprised that Jesus would speak to him at all. You see, Matthew was a publican. He was a tax collector. And that old English word, publican, doesn't mean that he was someone who owns a pub, uh, but it means that he was a civil servant, someone who provided a public service. Uh, You know, an ancient publican was someone who would have been involved in public uh, building work or maintaining public buildings or supplying, uh, supplying to armies overseas or collecting certain taxes, which Matthew did. And as in our own tax system, there are different kinds of taxation. You have income tax and you have VAT and then you have customs and excise. And that's where Matthew worked. Matthew was a customs officer in ancient times. He would have worked for customs and excise. And, uh, you know, in that respect, he had his own desk. He had his own office. Maybe he even had a, a red lane and a green, green lane. Who knows? You know, you get back from your holidays and you see that red lane and the green lane and the, uh, and the green lane says uh, nothing to declare and the red lane says goods to declare and uh, you know if you're anything like me you go down the green lane but you always feel guilty the whole length don't you because you think there must be something I should be declaring there must be something in my suitcase that shouldn't be there and so you have this this, uh, degree of guilt for no reason as you're walking through uh, the green lane well Matthew was whether he had a red lane or a green lane I doubt but, but he was based at Capernaum and remember that was the town where Jesus lived is where Jesus lived in the home of Simon. And, uh, and the reason Matthew lived there was because that's where his work was. There was a customs post 
at Capernaum, and there he would have raised taxes on those who docked boats at that port, and also he would have levied tax upon any fish that may have been caught. So no surprise for guessing who, of his, some, of who, of, uh, who some of his clientele were. It would have been Andrew and Peter and James and John. And so you can imagine, rather like ourselves, they didn't particularly care for Matthew as the tax collector. You know, if you get one of those brown envelopes through your door and it says now on His Majesty's service and it says Inland Revenue or Revenue Commissioner or whatever it says on there, you know, you're always a bit wary when you're opening that envelope. You don't like to receive it. Your heart isn't lifted when it comes to your letterbox. And Matthew wasn't a heart lifter. And Matthew was the kind of fellow when you saw him, he was bad news. It was going to cost you. He was going to find out how many fish that you brought in that day and he was going to levy a tax against you for the Roman government and he would pocket some of that money for himself. That was how he was paid. And so he was a Jew working for the hated Roman government, working for an army and a government of occupation. He was a traitor to his own nation. But I love Matthew's testimony. I love it because of its simplicity. There is no drama in it. He's just going about his business. He's just sitting at the seat of custom, as he puts it, sitting at the, at the desk, as it were. And Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now Luke, as is typical of Luke, gives us a little bit more detail. Let's see what Luke said about Matthew's conversion. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5 for a moment. Gospel of Luke in chapter 5 and verse 27. (coughs) Now Matthew is, is the apostle's Greek name. Levi is his Hebrew name. And Luke uses the Hebrew name, but if you have a little note in your Bible, you'll see it's called the call of Matthew. It's subtitled the call of Matthew. But verse 27, it says, After these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. Now, I love this story. I love the fact that the Lord Jesus comes along and he identifies this figure of Matthew sitting there at the port of Capernaum, sitting there at his office, doing his daily work, and he simply comes up to him and he says, follow me. It was a personal call, a personal invitation. And friends, if you have a personal invitation, it has to have a personal response. You know, this year, Hazel and I have, uh, have been invited to six weddings. We still want to go yet. I think we're going to be in the Guinness Book of Records by the end of the year. But there's been six weddings that we've attended, will have attended by the end of this year. And so we received six wedding invitations. And every one of those invitations required a response. Every one of them we had to send back an RSVP and notify the bride and groom of our intention to attend. Well, this is how it is with Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. Matthew couldn't ignore that invitation. He couldn't just pretend it didn't happen or he didn't hear it. He had to make a decision whether he would or whether he wouldn't follow Jesus. You and I have to make that same kind of decision 
tonight. You see, the Lord is calling upon every one of us. He's calling upon you to follow him. And you have to decide whether you will follow him or you will not follow him. You know, many people think today that the Lord is, is there to follow us. That he's there to meet our needs. That, that he follows in our week. That's, friends, that's not how this thing works. If you're going to be saved, you have to decide to follow him. You have to choose him. You have to make a decision for him. And notice that Matthew made this decision and he followed the Lord and he did so without qualification. You know, earlier in this book, we read of another man who said when he was invited to follow the Lord, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Now, as I said at the time, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't in the midst of grief and Jesus wasn't being heartless with the man. But what the man was saying was, I have an inheritance coming. And when that inheritance comes, when my father finally passed, passes away and I receive my inheritance then I'll go and follow you but you don't find that with Matthew it says Matthew arose and followed him Luke points out that he left all and rose up and followed him you see here's what Matthew did that day he burned his bridges he wasn't looking over his shoulder as he left his desk he decided he was going to follow Jesus and that was that he wasn't going to hold on to his past nor indeed was he going to hedge his bets on the future he was going to follow the Lord there was no going back for him now understand a lucrative government position such as he held would have been swiftly filled by somebody else as soon as he was gone Peter and James and John and Andrew, well, they could go back to fishing. You know, if things went wrong for them, they could always go back to their old trade. But if things went wrong for Matthew, there was no going back. There was no job for him to return to. So out of all the disciples, he had the most in material terms to lose. But he left all. And I make no apology for telling you tonight the same. If you're going to be saved, you must leave behind this world and all of its ties and follow after him. That's what it means to be a Christian. You know, I could soft soap this for you. Uh, you know, I could make this easier for you. I could suggest to you that if you trust Christ, he'll make you healthy and wealthy and, uh, and rich. And oh, No, 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 no. Listen, here's, this is not how it works. How it works is you leave all and you follow him. You make a decision for Christ and you pursue after him. And Matthew's conversion was wholehearted. This is what God seeks. The Bible says, Son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Proverbs 23 and 26. So Matthew really got saved that day. And you could really be saved today if you would do the same. If you would determine in your heart, I'm going to leave the world behind me. And I'm going to put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to accept him as my Savior. You could be saved this very evening. So there was that conversion here. And that conversion was followed by a celebration. Let's reflect on what Luke said of this. When he said this, And Levi, that's Matthew, made him, Jesus, a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others sat down with them. Notice that Luke uses the name Levi. I think that's wonderful. And I'll tell you why. When you're a tax collector in ancient Israel, you were basically cast out. Nobody wanted to know you. 
You were ostracized. You were out of your community. You were barred from the synagogue. You were prohibited, disqualified from ever being a judge sitting on the leadership council of your nation. You were disqualified even from being a witness in a court case. You were considered a disgrace to your family. In short, you were disowned, no longer considered a Jew. The other disciples certainly would have viewed Matthew that way when he was collecting taxes on the shores of Galilee in the town of Capernaum. And they would have been surprised that Jesus would go and and call a fellow like Matthew to himself. But when Matthew got saved, I want you to see this, the disciples started calling him Levi. Not the old Greek name that would have been his name for his Roman governors, but rather that Hebrew name. And what they were saying by the use of the name Levi is that you are accepted. We're accepting you. We're receiving you back in. You're not disowned anymore. We own you. You're one of us. And I love that because that's how the church should work. You know, sometimes the church takes in those whom society has cast out. And that's how it ought to be. You know, we ought to allow people to experience forgiveness and to recognize that forgiveness when they're truly saved by receiving them in. Now, Luke tells us, that Matthew held this feast. And it was held in his home. And notice that his colleagues, Luke says in verse 29 of chapter 5, a great company of publicans were invited. You know what we would call this today? We would call this Matthew's leaving do. You know, somebody leaves an office, they may sometimes have a leaving do for you. A little bit of a get-together. Maybe a dinner after work. And people might give you gifts and cards if they like you. They don't like you, they might just say goodbye. But if they like you, they might have a, a leaving do for you. And this is Matthew's leaving do. His old friends are invited along. He wants his colleagues to come along and to meet the Lord. I like the story of a man who left his house for church one Sunday morning just as his neighbor was loading his golf clubs into his car. And his neighbor shouted, Henry, come and play golf with me today. Henry answered and said, well, you know, I always go to church on the Lord's Day. And after a pause, the golfer said, well, you know, Henry, I've often wondered about your church, and I really admire your faithfulness, but I've invited you to play golf now seven or eight times, and you've never once invited me to go to church with you. Hey, Matthew wasn't that kind of Christian. Matthew invited his friends to come and meet Jesus. You see, it's not a matter of forcing our religion upon you. It's not a matter of us trying to shoehorn you into church membership, anything but. But here's the thing. Someone may have invited you here tonight. You may have been reluctant to go. You might have thought, I wish that person would leave me alone. Why are they always bothering me about going to that meeting and hearing that preacher? I'll tell you why. It's because they want you to know the joy and the peace of knowing the Lord Jesus. They want you to know what it is to be a Christian. They want you to have what we have. They want you to to understand that in Christ we have found complete satisfaction. And you can have it tonight. It can be yours tonight. And so Matthew invited his old crew along, alongside Jesus and Jesus' disciples, as well as some Pharisees and scribes, And also the disciples of John the Baptist. You know, it was an unusual gathering, to say the least, if you can imagine uh, this group of people all under the same roof, the saved, the seeking, the sinful, the sanctimonious. 
all come to the same party, as it were. Now, it seems that Jesus concentrated primarily on the sinful. Matthew points out that many publicans and sinners sat down with Jesus. And the Pharisees observed this. They observed that he ate with publicans and sinners. Now, you have to understand how these meals worked within the culture of that time. Not everybody who was invited sat at the table. So only certain people sat at the meeting table and ate. Other people stood around the walls just glad to be invited and would have watched in as the meal was being eaten. And the Pharisees would have done just that, as indeed had the the, uh, disciples of John the Baptist. They stood around the walls and they looked in. And the Pharisees wondered how it could be that Jesus would sit at the table with fellows such as these. How he would sit there with publicans and men that they called sinners. You see, they were too holy to be part of that meal. They were that, that, that kind of person who was too self-righteous to be rubbing shoulders with those that they regarded as lesser than themselves, as traitors to Israel, as sinners to the, of the worst kind. You know, in my time as a Christian, the Lord has allowed me to sit down with some rather colorful people along the way. And, uh, you know, perhaps I might not otherwise have sat with such folks uh, because when I think about them and I reflect over uh, some of the people I've met along the way, it's a regular rogues gallery, you know. I sat down with murderers and thieves, homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators and blackmailers. Some of them had abortions. One was an IRA bomber. I sat down with terrorists from both sides, gun runners, some gamblers, drunkards, drug addicts, jailbirds of all sorts. You know, where, you say, well, where, where did you meet these people, Pastor? You know where I met them? I met them in church. I met every one of them in church, somewhere along the line. Paul said much the same thing when he said this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Here's the thing, listen, if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian and you're looking around this meeting hall and you see all these beautiful folks with their shirt suits and ties on and these lovely ladies dressed in their Sunday best and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But if you look at all of that and you think, my goodness, butter wouldn't melt in their mouths, don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? Let me tell you, every church I've sat in and preached to has been a gathering of rascals. Well-dressed rascals, I'll grant you that, but rascals nonetheless. You hear their stories? My goodness, it'll make your hair curl, some of them. Say, I can't believe I'm hanging out with this fellow. My mother always said I'd fall into bad company, but I didn't think it would be a church. That's what a church is. It's a gathering of sinners. You know, that, that murderer that I mentioned there a few months ago, uh, he went on and became a Christian youth worker in, in, the, in England. Uh, the, uh, the blackmailer went on to become a police officer. The one who had an abortion is a Presbyterian minister's wife and the one who's a thief became a Baptist minister's wife. I'll tell you what. When verse 10 says that many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples, it sounds to me just like the gathering at the Lord's table every Sunday morning. 
What a glorious truth. We serve a God, get this now, who loves sinners. He hates sin. There's no question about that. But he loves sinners. He loves sinners. And my friend, that is as true for your sinful soul as it is for mine or for Matthew's or for any other. God loves you tonight. And Jesus wants to fellowship with you. And he's willing to receive you and to eat with you. Well, in verse 11, he makes a comparison. Let's look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 11. It says, and when the Pharisees saw it, when they saw this rogues gallery of sinners sitting around Jesus, when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now let me say this to you tonight. If and when you get saved, not everyone is going to like it. Some people are going to be critical. Some people are going to resent it. Some people who think they're better than you are going to get angry, and they're going to be especially angry at you for speaking to them about Jesus. You of all people, who do you think you are? You mean that you don't think we know all about you? Did we not grow up with you? Did we not go to work with you? Uh, were we not the ones who were with you in the club? Were we not the ones who hung out with you as a teenager? There's nothing about you we don't know. And they'll resent your testimony. They'll resent you of all people telling them what Christ has done for you. And you see that in this passage. Because the Pharisees come and they ask the, the disciples, why eateth your master? Why is Jesus eating with publicans, tax collectors, traitors, and sinners? Now there's a word, isn't it? Sinners. It means those who have no respect for God's law. It means those who have fallen short of his standard, who missed the mark, who didn't quite get to where they should have been, those who were continually erring in their ways, those who were always messing up. Is that you? you one of those people who seems to always get it wrong, always messes up, no matter how hard you try? Well, I have good news for you. Jesus will take time for you. He's willing to eat with you. He wants to have fellowship with you. His desire is to save and to cleanse you, to make you whole, to reconcile you to God. But for the Pharisee, for the self-righteous, that word sinner, well, it's a dirty word, isn't it? He doesn't want to think of himself as a sinner. It's a word that we might happily apply to others, but not care to have applied to ourselves. And Jesus, here's what I want you to get tonight. If you're not a sinner, you're in terrible trouble because Jesus only deals with sinners. Those are the only people he's interested in. He's not interested in the, in the self-righteous. He's not interested in the, in the sanctimonious. He's not interested in the hypocrite. He's not interested in one who's merely a churchgoer, who goes to church to be seen. Sometimes we use the phrase in Ulster, good living for a living. He's not interested in that kind of a person. 
He's interested in sinners. Look at the illustration he gives in verse 12. When Jesus heard that, when he heard this criticism of the Pharisees, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that be sick. Now here's the thing. You don't take a pill until you know that you're ill. Isn't that right? You don't take a pill until you know that you're ill. You know, uh, I, I, if I may use myself as an illustration, um, you know, I, I got a chest infection during our gospel mission a month ago. And everybody kept saying to me, you know, you should go and see the doctor. And I kept saying, no, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. Two weeks passed. I'm still coughing, still barking like a, a you know, like a donkey or something. I'm, I'm coughing. People said to me, have you been to see the doctor? So I phoned the doctor. I told the doctor my position, and the doctor says, I'll give you a prescription. So I got the prescription, but I didn't fill the prescription. <laughs> I held on to the prescription. Because I said to everybody, you know, I think I'm getting better. I was deceiving myself. I wasn't getting better. I was kidding myself. And so after another week, I decided I'd go and get the tablets. And I got the tablets. And then somebody says to me, have you got the tablets? I says, yes. They said, have you taken them? I said, no. No, I've not taken them. I think I'm getting better. (laughs) But I wasn't getting better. And so I did take the tablets. And guess what? I'm still sick. But, But I did take the tablets only when I realized I was at the end of my capability, my body's capability to deal with this particular virus or whatever it is. You see, until you admit your need, you're never going to go to the doctor. Until you have a headache, you're never going to take a paracetamol. You don't visit the doctor unless you're sick, unless something's wrong. And you don't come to Jesus until you realize you're a sinner. You see, a lot of us think to ourselves, well, I'm all right. Jesus might be what those other people in church need, but that's not what I need because I'm not where they're at. I'll get by without him. I'll do okay in the end. My friend, just like me, you're fooling yourself. You're kidding yourself. You're a sinner. And you know you're a sinner. And the sooner you can look in the mirror of God's word and admit you're a sinner the better off you'll be because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. You see, the kingdom of God is for the spiritually sick who want to be healed. It's for the spiritually corrupt who want to be cleansed. It's for the spiritually poor who want to be rich. It's for the spiritually hungry who want to be fed. It's for the spiritually dead who want to have eternal life. It's for the sinful outcast who longs to belong as one of God's children. Jesus is the perfect doctor. We refer to him as the great physician. He's the perfect doctor. I'll tell you this about Jesus, and this is probably not true of many doctors. He's always available. He's always available. I spoke to a man this week. He told me he had to see a doctor, and he phoned the surgery, as you do, and he phoned, 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 and he phoned. You know how that goes. You've done that yourself, haven't you? And so he decided he would give up phoning and he'd go in and see the doctor. He got in his car and he drove up to the surgery and he came into the reception. 
He says to the receptionist, I'd like to make an appointment to see the doctor. She says, you have to phone. He says to her, why do I have to phone? I'm here. Can't you just make the appointment? She says, I'm sorry. I'm not allowed to do that. You have to phone. He says, but I'm here. She says, I'm sorry. You have to phone. So he thought, okay. So he phoned right there at the receptionist. The phone was ringing. She didn't answer the phone. He went outside after a bit and he phoned from the car park. Finally, the phone was picked up. The lady in the reception spoke to him. He says, uh, I'd like to make an appointment to see the doctor. She says, oh, I can see you. She says, I can see you across the car park. Whereupon he walked across the car park and came into the reception. She says, you have to go outside. You can't phone in here. You know, I don't know what that would do to your blood pressure. But I'll tell you what it would do for my blood pressure. My blood pressure would be going through the roof at this point. I remember being in a similar situation. And the receptionist says to me, you don't look very well. I said, it's because it's not very well. I wouldn't be here if it was very well, would I? Sometimes it's hard to get a hold of a doctor. But listen, it's not hard to get hold of Jesus. He's just a prayer away. He's always available. He always makes the right diagnosis. I remember going to a doctor one time and sat down and says, Doctor, I want, to, I want you to help me with my problem. He says, what do you think the problem is? I said, what do you mean? He says, what do you think's wrong with you? Well, what does that matter? I'm not a doctor. If I knew what was wrong with me, I'd come and tell you what was wrong with me. I'm looking for you to make a diagnosis. I'm looking for you to take all your learning and all those books that you've read and all of those experiments that you've taken part in and all of that experience that you have and to look at my symptoms and say, this is what you have and here's the medicine for it. But sometimes doctors get it wrong. Sometimes they say you've got indigestion when you have cancer. Sometimes they give you the wrong medication. But here's the thing. Jesus always gives you the right diagnosis. He tells you you're a sinner and you are a sinner. And here's the beautiful thing. He always provides the complete cure. He's never going to give you the wrong medicine. Then Jesus said to them, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I'm not come to call the righteous, but listen to this, but sinners to repentance. That's who he's interested in. He says to these deeply religious men, these church-going men, if we may call them that, I'm not interested in your ceremonies. I'm not interested in your ritual. I'm not interested in your incense and your sacrifices. What I want is to show you grace. What I want is to extend mercy to you. I want to forgive you your sins freely. My friends, that's what the Lord wants for any one of us. He doesn't want you getting caught up in the hocus pocus of religion. You know, there's nothing I dislike more than somebody referring to me as religious. I've had people say to me over the years, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. They say, I'm not religious. I say, I'm not religious either. And they say, what do you mean? I'm not interested in religion. 
Religion is man's way of trying to appease God. But repentance is God's way of coming to God. Faith is God's way of coming to God. Turning from our sin. Trusting in Christ. That's what makes the difference. Not religion. You can have all the religion in the world. Listen. You can attend church seven days a week. You can be baptized so many times that your skin goes like a peach. Listen, it makes no difference. You need to be saved. And the Pharisees, as it turns out, weren't the only complainants. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then came to him the disciples of John. That's John the Baptist, not John the disciple of the Lord, but John the Baptist. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft or often, but thy disciples fast not? Jesus said unto them, Come the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Here's John's disciples. And they're also looking in and they're equally upset. Notice they side with the Pharisees. They say, why do we and the Pharisees fast often and your disciples fast not? They ask the question of Jesus. And effectively, effectively they're saying this. First of all, you sit down with sinners and now you, we find you don't even fast as you ought to. You see, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And quite possibly John's disciples followed that particular course. And it may well have been that this event took place on a Monday or a Thursday. And so they were in a place where they weren't eating at all. And Jesus was sitting down having a feast with sinners. And they said, not only are you eating with sinners, but you shouldn't even be eating at all. You know, sometimes we allow tradition to become so important to us that it's the only thing that matters. You see, here was John. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. Uh, But right there, right under the noses of his disciples was the very Messiah that John had been heralding. They should have been rejoicing. They should have been feasting, not fasting. This was a time of gladness. Sinner had been saved. And he had brought other sinners to Jesus. What in the world could be wrong with that? And yet they grumbled. Look, listen to me. Jesus didn't look down his nose at sinners. He didn't raise placards and protests. He didn't wave a flag or beat a drum. He loved them up close and personal. He cared for their souls. He wasn't interested in making some great stand against sinners. It's not what Jesus is about. Remember years ago, a young Roman Catholic lady from Pole Glass Estate in Belfast, a very strongly Republican housing estate, came to our church. She was working with a young woman in our church and she brought this young lady from Polglass into our church and the young lady made a profession of faith. She came one night and she said, I want to trust this Jesus of yours. She got saved. One of the men of the church got very irate about this. 
He got up right in front of the congregation, right in the face of the pastor. He got up and he said this, I'm not coming to this Fenian-loving church. You know what I'd say to a fellow like that? Good. Don't come. There's the door. Don't come back to either you get right with God or you get saved, one or the other. Because there's no place in the church of God for that kind of bigotry. And there's no place in the gospel for that kind of bias. Listen to me. God loves people and Jesus will save any sinner who comes on to him, whatever their background. Whatever their background. And that's what people need. And my friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, that's what you need. You need to be saved. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, no matter what men think about you or how they may view you, no matter what your religious background, no matter how sinful your soul, there's a God in heaven tonight who loves you. And sent his son from heaven above to earth beneath to die for you on a cross in a place called Calvary. He will save you. He desires to eat with you. To fellowship with you. You get to the very last book of your Bible and he says this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will, listen to what he says, sup with him. What does that mean? It means I'll eat with him. And he with me. Friends, I wonder tonight if you're here and you're not a believer, will you open your heart to Jesus? Will you come as a sinner? Will you trust him to save your soul? Dear friend, listen to me. Christ receives sinful men and he eats with them. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.